Yeah, so we're in the parking lot of the YMCA that I go to a few times a week. This is the one that doesn't have a gender neutral changing room. Uh, it's just men's or women's. So we're gonna have a little adventure. Which changing room do you usually use? I would usually reuse the men's. Lewis Wallace and I meet up one day in Durham, North Carolina, where we both live. We're wired with lavalier mics, so we won't draw attention to ourselves or the fact that we're recording. Before we go in, I ask him to describe his own appearance, gender-wise. I've been pretty androgynous since I was about 15 or 16. Kind of boyishly androgynous looking. But now I'm in my mid-30s and I have like gray hair, some. <laughs> And so it's sort of a different thing. Yeah, a little harder to navigate than it used to be. I'm about five foot seven. I have short hair. Most people glance at me and think they're seeing a boy, but probably about half the people then do a double take and think they're seeing a girl <laughs> or a woman. Hi, how are you? Good. Lewis checks us in. Got your guest pass. The music and voices are pouring out of a Zumba aerobics class. The weight machines and treadmills are nearby, not too many people on them, mid-afternoon on a weekday. I'm a little nervous about this. Are you? Yeah. Okay, now we're gonna walk into the men's locker room, but before we do, we're like standing at the threshold. I feel like there's a couple things we should talk about. Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't think I've ever gone into one of these and talked mm. to someone. Right. Because that's one of the gender things yeah. that can be a giveaway for people. Like, I've had a pretty high voice most of my life. Now it's a little lower. But if people would look at me and perceive me as male until I talk and then be like, oh my goodness, you know, it's a she. So if I do use a men's room, a locker room, or bathroom, I don't talk at all. So this will be like a first. Yeah, yeah, okay. And normally I just avoid this kind of space. In, in general, I just use it. I go to places that have a gender neutral option. All right, should we do it? Let's do it. Okay. We walk into the locker room itself. There are just two or three men in there, one sitting on a bench, one coming out of the shower. They ignore us, which is what men generally do in locker rooms if they don't know each other. Lewis tells me what he would do if he were here alone and were actually going to use this locker room. I keep my head down and walk in over to this side and go in this single stall, kind of changing stall, change and get out. Now I want to know about you, like, what is this space to you? Um, it's comfortable. Yeah, I would walk in here like I own the place, yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, not really, but, but like I certainly belong here and have every right to be here and have zero concern about the way anybody's gonna perceive me or react to me. Mm -hmm. um, See how I just smiled at you? Smiling is one of the things that I don't do in spaces like this. Because ever since I came out as trans, people would say to me, oh, you, you know, your smile's so pretty, your smile's too pretty to be a boy. Big smile. Yeah. So you don't smile. You don't make eye contact. 
Like, keep your head down. Uh, don't talk. Those precautions and Lewis's nervousness in a men's locker room as a trans, genderqueer person are not about shyness. He's not thin-skinned about how people see him. In fact, he's used to people's uncertainty about his gender and is fine with it. He doesn't correct the ones who call him she. In general, it's sort of a free-for-all. He, she, whatever. I don't, it's such a daily thing, I don't have time <laughs> to think about it all the time. His wariness is about something else, of course. It's about fear of violence, harassment, arrest. I mean, <laughs> that's not out of the question. People get the cops called on them for being perceived to be in the bathroom of the wrong gender. Hey, Celeste. Hey, John. So I've had to add something to my list of privileges, something I hadn't really thought much about. In this case, a privilege you have as a cisgender person, right? The freedom yeah. to use gendered bathrooms and locker rooms without fearing for your personal safety. And for that matter, to go anywhere at all without worrying that somebody might decide you need to be harassed or beaten or killed for not conforming to the gender binary. And of course, the people that Lewis legitimately has to fear as a trans person are cisgender, heterosexual men like me. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX, it's Seen on Radio, part nine of our series, Men. Our season-long look at gender, masculinity, sexism, the patriarchy. This time, Lewis Wallace, He's a journalist, writer, radio reporter. You might have heard of him because he was fired in early 2017 by the public radio show Marketplace because of an essay he wrote on his personal blog challenging traditional ideas about journalistic objectivity. Lewis wrote, for example, that as a trans person, it doesn't make sense to expect him to be neutral about whether trans people should have the same rights as everybody else. Lewis is not here to talk about journalistic objectivity. But let's just say we at Scene on Radio did not ask Lewis to be objective on this topic. In the series up until now, we have made references to the fact that the gender binary is not the whole story. But we are past due to hear directly from a trans person. We invited Lewis to produce a piece telling his story. And I guess I wondered something like this. What is it like to transition from female assigned to, well male-ish, more male, given all the problems, the toxicity that so often comes with manhood in our culture, all the stuff we've been exploring here. Before we get into that story, Lewis's story, though, he has a couple of disclaimers he wants to put on the table. So one disclaimer is about me, and the other one is about representation in general. First, about me. I'm trans, and I was female assigned at birth, but I'm not a man. I do go by he and wear pants and stuff. I identify as genderqueer and androgynous. I'm also white and I come from class privilege. So those are my intersecting identities that give me a lot of privilege in the world, which gets me to the more general disclaimer, which is that talking about being trans is always really scary because we are so underrepresented. A lot of people don't know anyone who's transgender or they don't think they do. 
And so I just want to be really, really clear that I'm speaking from this specific limited experience. Uh, We'll also hear in this episode from my friend Melvin, who's a black trans man. Uh, It's just a tiny slice, the two of us, and please know that we only represent ourselves. Celeste Lewis told me that one thing coming out as trans has revealed to him is how much maleness is defined in terms of negatives, ways we're not supposed to be. So getting rid of parts of yourself that are considered feminine, sometimes violently rejecting those traits. So Lewis wanted a flat chest and a lower voice and maybe some facial hair. But that doesn't mean he wanted to give up all those so-called feminine parts of his personality. Here's Lewis. You start learning about the limitation of what man or male is really young. My dad, Bruce, remembers his dad teaching him that. This was important to him. I mean, he was uh, worried that uh, I would come across as a sissy. Um, I didn't give him much to worry about in that regard, but he made it clear that, you know, that was a thing to be avoided at all costs. Bruce has always been really tall and pretty traditionally masculine, deep-voiced and strong, not really into traditionally feminine things for the most part. At some point when I was like 12 or 13, we, you know, it's family Valentine's Day, and he said, you know, you really shouldn't be giving me a Valentine. I'm not going to give you a Valentine anymore. There's these pink hearts. You know, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> I was just a kid. give <laughs> giving out valentines and he was worried that it had some sort of you know you know sexual implication or something you know so he was he was pretty extreme in that way his dad didn't want him getting braces either because that too might make him seem like a sissy so my dad's teeth are crooked to this day i thought the highest compliment you could receive as you were growing up was that, you know, that you had a hairy chest and it just never came. I think I wished for it so hard that I probably affected my own hormones. (laughs) Drove them into hiding. (laughs) He studied French literature in college, which his dad hated, and then joined the military, just like his dad had. I had different role models than my dad did. For starters, I had my dad. He cried easily and loved French poetry and long discussions about ideas. But my real idol, no offense, dad, was my older brother, Clint. I wanted to be like him. He played basketball, so I tried to play basketball. He liked Janet Jackson, so I liked Janet Jackson. He had a bunch of girlfriends, I wanted a bunch of girlfriends, and so on. When Clint was in sixth grade, there was a school dance and Clint had his hair slicked to one side with that Dep gel and this button-down shirt that was red and blue and yellow squares. I remember him so clearly primping in the mirror, blasting Ace of Bass and practicing these very cool dance moves. Which is just to say that my brother wasn't super traditionally masculine. He was more of what you might call a pretty boy. Meanwhile, I was still prepubescent, had short hair, and often passed for a boy, too. But that skinny tomboy thing only lasted another year or two before I got breasts and menstrual blood, and it started to feel like I could never be a pretty boy like Clint. Until I realized, sure I could. Uh, One way to start is to say that although when you were a little girl, you were very girly, 
you also were like me and like my mother and never really conformed to any of the gender stereotypes that people wanted you to conform to. This is my mom, Raven. My mom and grandmother didn't care for gendered expectations at all. My grandmother, Sarah, was a notorious badass, one of the first women in South Carolina to ever get a law degree. My mom was a mathematician and worked in construction. She went to Smith College, the women's college. And at some point along the way, you became a feminist, would you say? Yeah, I mean, way early on, yeah, in high school. How did that happen? How did that happen? (laughs) How could it not happen? (laughs) I mean, you know. So feminism was a given in my family, and femininity was pretty flexible, too. I remember just playing around with that. So you performed girl the way that you wanted to when you were a little child. And then as time went on, that became less and less um, gendered. Most children even still are raised in an environment where there's an expectation, you know, you're a girl or you're a boy, and that's kind of what you're going to be. And there's some amount of stereotypical things that come with that. And I don't think of myself really as having been raised that way. No, you weren't raised that way. I mean, you've pointed out to me now many, many times that I did give you a Barbie doll. But first of all, I I don't remember that, but I have evidence in a photograph that it did happen. Uh, But, you know, I I have seen parents who really emphasize all this stereotyped gendered stuff, like princess girl, little girls who were given princess suits and those funny dolls. What are those things called? American... You know, those dolls that that cost hundreds of dollars and they have tea parties and things like that. American girl. American girl dolls and things like that. We didn't do any of that. And we didn't do any frilly, frilly dressing up or, or the male version of whatever that is. I had Barbies and these butterfly wings I'd wear around. And I also had a top hat that I got when I was about nine and didn't take off for several years. But gender flexibility, letting girls be tomboys or boys be a little frilly, is not the same as actually being transgender. And that was harder for her. I mean, I at the time, I just thought a girl was a girl and a boy was a boy and fine, whatever. But um, so it didn't occur to me that you wouldn't be a girl. And then at some point in my teenage years, I started to explore being trans and explore gender and come out about that sort of gradually over some time. Um, What do you remember about that? Well, you know, even in elementary school, at some point you started, um, you you dropped all the feminine kind of play that you had done, like wearing wings and, you know, dressing up that way, and started wearing a hat all the time, a, a male hat, and um, dressing like a tomboy. And that that's all fine, you know, and I thought that was very interesting that you would do that. And but what are I refer to that as my butch phase, yeah. third grade. There you go, third grade butch phase. But it went on for a while. And But what I remember most about it was how scary it was. when The first thing I remember was when you started wrapping your breasts. And I was just scared for you that, that something awful was going to happen to you. And that's the main thing that I remember about how I felt about it. Just fear 
that something bad was going to happen to you. It was the time when bad things were happening to people because of sex and gender to young people, you know. And that's the main thing I remember about it is the fear that I felt for you and for us that we might have to face something awful. Were you surprised? Uh, surprise is not a word I would use for it. I mean, not really surprised. I was puzzled, I think, puzzled. I don't know that I was surprised. I was puzzled and confused. I was confused, yes. It wasn't a common thing to even have heard of back then. You know, you'd heard of um, cross-dressers, maybe transsexuals, you know, people who, extreme versions of whatever. But it wasn't anything that was a kind of a normal, um, a normal condition or a normal attitude or a normal reality. And so it was confusing. It was confusing. Yeah, I remember perceiving that you felt sort of almost like abandoned, like you'd had this daughter and you wanted, you know, you'd hoped that I would have been a daughter. And why did I have to go over to this other thing that was more like my dad and my brothers? Yeah, well, when uh, there was a time when it seemed like that's what you wanted to do, was be more like your dad and your brothers. And that did trouble me, you know. You didn't want to be like me. It hurts your feelings. But um, I don't know. It's just time. And I now know that you don't, you're not trying to be like your dad or your brothers. You're trying to be like you. I guess I've wondered if that's about sort of, maybe at the time there was a feeling of, that there were just sort of these two options if you were going to, you know, quote-unquote transition. You would do it because you wanted to become, you know, a masculine man or something, which was never true of me, but it seemed like maybe you perceived it that way. Yeah, I definitely perceived it that way. Whether that's what you meant or not, that's the way that it felt to me, like you were saying, I want to be a man, you know. And I interpreted that to mean, you know, man, man, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Man, man, what does that mean? <laughs> Maybe man, man, man. <laughs> Triple man. Triple man. <laughs> or, or we could just say Superman. <laughs> My mom, Raven, didn't have this idea of a superman, a normal man, like my dad or her dad, who was so much less sensitive and gentle and caring than me and didn't like dolls or pink. It sounds silly when you say it out loud, but this is the stuff trans people get told all the time. Like, you can't be male because you're too nice. I mean, I can remember thinking um, that there was no way you were going to ever be a man 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 as I would say because you weren't going to give those parts of yourself up you know the female feminine kind of parts of your being which are your emotional connections with people and I don't know the way you interact with people it's not going to change which is good and then it makes you think about what men are being asked to give up yeah 
being asked to or I don't know if they're being asked or if I don't know. When I came out as trans, I got so much unwanted feedback. Your hands are too small. Your voice is too high. You smile too much. Clint, my brother with the awesome 90s dance moves, was one of the people who just didn't get it. I remember sitting at a bar telling him about my plans to have my breasts removed. He was totally confused by it. You just don't seem like a guy to me. Not like a normal guy, he said. I was so hurt. In my mind, I'd always been kind of like Clint. Maybe more feminine, but not that different from him. It felt like because I had a high voice and tits, I was invisible. So I asked him, what about, you know, swishy gay guys? This question was so silly, but also he had a lot of gay friends, and it wasn't like every guy he knew was hyper-masculine. Clint looked at me, and I could almost see the little light bulb going on. So you're like, like a gay guy, he said. Internally, I kind of giggled because I don't see myself as a gay guy exactly, but we were getting warmer. Yes, I said, I am like a gay man. He sipped his beer and thought about it. About five years later, he started introducing me as his brother. It took people a long time to get it, but I was determined to be a he, some kind of he, without getting rid of the things that were supposedly feminine about me. My friend Melvin has been through something similar. So my name is Melvin, and I identify as a transgender man. Um, I also identify as a man, Um, gay, queer. I use both of those um, to describe how I identify. Melvin lives in Athens, Georgia. And unlike me, he mostly passes as male, but he still navigates gender stuff all the time. He told me this great story about that. He used to be part of a big progressive black church on Chicago's South Side. The men's fellowship was having a game night, and Melvin was there with about 60 guys, mostly aged 40 to 70. Um, I was definitely on the younger spectrum there. Um, And so yeah, so the game, the first game that we played um, was Two Truths and a Lie. That's an icebreaker game where you say three statements about yourself. Two are true, one is a lie. Then everyone else has to guess which one's the lie. In this case, it was a competitive version of the game. Whoever tricked everyone the hardest would win a prize. At this point, Melvin had been going to the men's group at church for quite a while, but no one knew he was trans. The three statements I gave about myself were, um, I once called my dad the N-word when I was eight. Um, I once ate an entire three-layer chocolate cake in one sitting, and I used to be a woman. So those were the three statements that I gave. He wasn't sure if he should go there, but right in the moment, he just did. Clearly, <laughs> as you can probably imagine, everyone thought that the, uh, the third statement was the lie. Um, and then I was like, well, actually, the chocolate cake statement is the lie. And you could hear a pin drop, Lewis. There was silence. Melvin won the shit out of that game. He got an iTunes gift card, which was awesome because he's a DJ. But then afterwards, people came up to me and they thanked me um, for sharing. Um, They invited me to be part of their different ministries that they were part of. 
Um, they hugged me. They they just showed all this tremendous support and appreciation for for sharing what I shared. So that was really affirming. By this time, Melvin was definitely passing, which is why the guys in his church group were so surprised. But it had been a long process, and it came with some real sacrifices. I remember when I first started transitioning, feeling that I had to adhere to some sort of masculine norm in order to be accepted um, as a man, as a transgender man. He came out around 2008, before the more recent explosion of images of different kinds of trans people in media. And so he remembers getting a lot of this same feedback, that to be a trans man, you had to be hyper-masculine. YouTube was a big place for getting information about other trans people. What I mostly saw on YouTube were masculine trans guys who were straight, and um, and so I, on some level, understood that in order to be accepted as trans, I um, had to be very conventionally masculine. And so I remember around that time, that same year I came out as trans, I gave away all of my feminine clothes, my jewelry, even though I didn't want to, um, but I felt that I had to. And it was sort of like this, you know, big moment. Then there's the story of the laptop cover. Definitely earlier on, even after I transitioned, there were transgender men in my life who said that, um, who would call into question some of the things I did. Like I had a pink laptop case. Uh, one trans man said something about that. Like, you know, why are you carrying on that pink laptop case? Of course, not every trans guy was giving off that kind of message. It was literally a few years ago when I had a friend of mine who's also trans wear a necklace. And I said something like, I miss wearing necklaces. And he was like, well, wear a necklace, <laughs> you know? These days, he wears pink and carries a purse if he wants. He's kind of relaxed into it now that he generally passes. But it can be unsafe for a man, trans or not, to embrace femininity. Melvin recently posted a story on Facebook about being harassed on the street. So this particular day, I was wearing some booty shorts and a tank top. I think the shorts might have been pink as well, hot pink. He was walking in downtown Athens. It's a college town. I had gotten called a faggot by some guys driving this pickup truck past the downtown area where I was at. Was just experiencing a lot of stares and finger pointing from people um, based on what I was wearing that day, I'm assuming. Um, it made me feel uncomfortable. I was super self-conscious about it. I could tell one woman was literally pointing at me and sort of laughing with the person she was sitting next to. Here's what Melvin posted on Facebook. Today was exhausting. I'm exhausted by the stairs, by the people pointing at me and leaning over to the person next to them like I was a joke. Uh, I was exhausted by the shouts of die faggot from a car passing by as I do something as audacious as simply walking down the street in some booty shorts. Yes, none of this is new. There are folks who go through far worse, even killed, particularly trans women and femmes of color. Yes, I know that Many women and femmes experience things similar to this daily. Yes, the fact that this country is thoroughly transphobic and homophobic is not new to me or lost on me. I know all these things, and I think there's something powerful continuing to name these everyday acts of violence so we d that we do not normalize them. That is to say, I'm invested in not normalizing our dehumanization. And a reminder to all my queer and trans and non-binary fam that we are beautiful and precious. Athens, Georgia is getting all of my side eye today. He says he did get a few nice compliments on the street from other black men, but mostly that day he just felt really angry. 
there are a lot of people who love me in my life and it's just hurtful when people look at me and they see me as some, someone to be despised. And so, yeah, so I think that for us to express ourselves um, is, a, is an act of resistance. A while ago, I had an experience sort of like Melvin's. Sometimes I wear a short dress and a long curly black wig and I do makeup. I think I look hot, like a boy in a dress, something I've always liked. I was wearing all that at a bar in Ohio with my partner, and this guy started looking at me with just open disgust. What are you, some kind of freak, he said. You're a man. He was looking at my genitals, talking about them. And when I told him to fuck off, he got up in my face. Other people watched but didn't say anything. I was pissed off, but also scared. I wanted to stand up to him, but I was afraid of getting beat up. I backed down, grabbed my partner off the dance floor, and left the bar in tears. I haven't worn a dress in public since. One thing I'm sure of is that this anti-femininity stuff damages all of us. James Baldwin once wrote that everything in life depends on how that life accepts its limits. My reality, and the reality of a lot of my community, is that we've decided not to accept the limits of gender. Why can't I be boyish and sweet, soft-spoken and tough, emotionally accessible and sexually dominant at the same time? Why can't my dad be butch and study French poetry? Why can't my mom be maternal and run a construction site? I just can't bring myself to believe in binary gender, but there's no way around the fact that not believing in it means working to transform it. My mom struggled a lot when I first came out as trans. She didn't want me to be a man, man, man. But now I feel like she understands. You are making a very strong statement about life and reality in the way that you live. That's really important. You are living the life that you think it's important to live in the face of pressures that would have you live it a different way. You know, And that's the way it seemed to me for a long time now. Women and other kinds of people transmasculine and non-binary and genderqueer and two-spirit folks are constantly asked and expected to be vulnerable. It's also a strategy sometimes for getting what you need. The Me Too movement is a prime example where there's no justice until some woman makes herself extremely vulnerable, personally and professionally. And the flip side is men not being vulnerable, not learning how and also fearing it pushing it away by being cruel to each other and to women and feminine people. So how can we make it safe to be vulnerable? Not just for men, but for everyone. How can we make it safe to be feminine, no matter what gender you were assigned at birth? How can men be a part of that? I'm just opening up packages with needles in them. And then this might be my favorite part you put the big needle into this little vial and draw out the gel, testosterone gel. I started taking testosterone pretty recently, 17 years into being out as trans. And that was a decision that was totally about me, my comfort in my own body, not about wanting to pass as a man. And then switch to the tiny needle. And then this is the one I'm going to stab into my leg and inject. It really doesn't hurt. 
Still, as these changes happen to my body, my voice getting lower, muscles growing, whiskers filling in, I feel people looking at me differently. I feel how I become less of a target. And in a way, less is expected of me. Less kindness, less gentleness and vulnerability, less listening. But I don't accept that. I don't want to eliminate masculinity necessarily. I want it to be more flexible, less violent. I don't want a masculinity that means getting rid of everything feminine, harming feminine people. So with each shot of testosterone, I commit to transforming that reality. Lewis Wallace. And we're back. You know, Lewis used the word vulnerable several times. It's such an important word in this whole discussion about problematic masculinity and patriarchy. There are lots of ways to describe the differences between what we consider masculine and what we think of as feminine in our culture. But it's really hard to think of a single word that's better than that one for capturing that difference. Yes, and specifically the enormous damage that comes from teaching boys and men that we can't be vulnerable, that vulnerability equals weakness. Women are vulnerable, men are not. And it's telling that that's come through so clearly for Lewis, having lived life as a female child and then transitioning to someone who is at least perceived as male most of the time and goes by he. The fact that he has to resist the assumption from other people that he would give up his vulnerability as part of that transition. Before we go any further in talking about all this, I think it's important to pick up on Lewis's point about the rich and varied spectrum of people who don't identify as simply male or female, and that he speaks only for himself. Right? Trans and genderqueer people across that spectrum face different kinds of barriers and threats and limitations. An intersectionality really comes into play here. Every trans person is vulnerable to transphobia. But Lewis would be the first to say that transitioning, as he's doing, from female in the direction of maleness in a patriarchal culture is not as fraught or dangerous as doing the reverse. Yeah. The writer and activist Julia Serrano coined the term transmisogyny to refer to the intersection of transphobia and misogyny. So trans women are vulnerable not only to the stigma and danger of being non-cisgender, they're transitioning to female in a sexist man's world. You could say that's the ultimate challenge, the ultimate betrayal to patriarchy. From the standpoint of straight cis men, far and away the most likely people to harass or harm trans people. At least a trans man is trying to join the man's club, right? A trans woman or a male assigned person who identifies as genderqueer is a traitor. They're giving up their manhood to join the lesser sex. So some men committed to traditional masculinity and the binary find that deeply threatening, enraging even. The larger perspective is, again, that all of this is unnecessary. The fact that it's such a huge deal that some people don't identify as either male or female, or they identify as both. Our society has taken real steps in a very short time, just in the last decade or two, in acknowledging trans people and accommodating and accepting them compared to just, you know, within our lifetimes. 
But we're really at the beginning of moving away from the complete failure to acknowledge non-binary people, which lasted for centuries, if not millennia, in Western culture. And as we have heard, many other cultures, past and present, do recognize more than two genders, or they at least understand that people fall along a spectrum with regards to gender identity. It's really patriarchy that created this rigid binary that declared men are like this and women are like that, and also men are in charge. Yes, and Lewis wanted to make sure we make this point clear. The problem is patriarchy and the notions of masculinity that it manufactured. Right, not just because straight cis men are the ones most likely to harm trans people, but the whole reason that being trans is in any way a big deal, a problem for anyone, is the result of gender norms built by patriarchy. So that sounds like one more very good reason to burn it down. (laughs) Or at least as Lewis suggests, Let's make more space in masculinity, if we're going to keep masculinity around. Space for vulnerability, gentleness, simple kindness and acceptance of everybody. Next time, a story about raising a boy through that Bermuda Triangle known as male adolescence. John Barth signs off on our scripts. Music by Alex Weston and by Evgeny and Sasha Galperine. Music and production help from Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Follow Seen on Radio on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too, at Celeste Headley, H-E-A-D-L-E-E. The show comes from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX.